thank you for allowing me to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. It's good to be home. Uh, just being here. First hour walking in, seeing a bunch of people I didn't know. Brian was quick to point out they all came after I left. <laughs> Emphasizing that. How many of you were here when I was here? Good, five of you. Okay, good. All right. Yes, the church really took off after I left, um, and uh, it is good to see that. We had, uh, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We, there was probably some stupidity in our decision to move down here. I mean, we, we did it quickly. We, we wanted to do what God wanted us to do, and we thought this is what he wanted to do, us to do, and he kind of lined everything up. We sold our house in a day, and uh, everything just lined up. Martha got a job two weeks before we got here um, from someone uh, that she uh, knew from Diana. She got a job, and I appreciate Martha because that's the first time since the kids were born that she had to go back to work full-time, and she had to in order for us to survive and for us to launch this church, and so I appreciate her sacrifice uh, through those years. There's a lot of good memories. Probably the highlight was baptizing my two boys and Sharon and Terry Heath's pool, along with some of you as well. We had a great baptismal that day, um, especially, of course, because my, my kids getting baptized. But just a great, great time here. We, we had certainly difficult moments, but you know what? You guys have such a strong leadership team here. You know, Brian said some things about me, but Brian, if it wasn't for Brian, it, you know, Northwest wouldn't be here. Just wouldn't. He has a keen mind for things related to business and all the details of finances, which I am clueless. And uh, God brought us two together to launch something that, as I look out, I'm so encouraged to see. I'm so thankful for what's going on here. I'm encouraged uh, by your continuous outreach and influence into the northwest part of, of this area. Brian had the foresight to see that the northwest part of Cary was going to grow by 50,000 people in five years, and they needed a church that taught uh, God's word and was faithful to him, and, and here you are. Um, We've been gone eight years now, this month. It's hard to believe that. Seeing some of you, it's like old home week. I mean, it's like you haven't changed. It's like just coming, we were here last Sunday. That's how fresh it is and so encouraging to see that. And I know your ministry is growing, and I know you're going to be building a, a building soon. Are you excited about that? Yeah. yeah. All right. And I want to share with you this morning some things that I think will help you as you go into this church building, as you go to the next level of ministry as Northwest Community Church. And there's some stats I want to share with you because these stats really help me understand the significant opportunity we have in this area to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are 330 million people in the United States. 75% of those folks, roughly 244 million, live in 184 cities comprised of 250,000 or more, but here is the sad stat. 10%, only 10% orient their lives around the will of Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Let it sink in. 10% of the United States align themselves with the will of Jesus Christ. If we localize those stats, we come to the triangle. 1.8 million people. Raleigh's going to grow by 72% by 2040. 
The second fastest growing county in the nation is Johnston County. It's great. We are growing. We are a harvest-rich area, and we exist for those who are without Christ. That's why Northwest is here. As nice as a building is going to be, and it will take you to the new level, and you will grow rapidly once you enter that building. You might double in size in the first couple of weeks, literally. But the church facility will not reach the lost around you. The programs of your church won't reach the lost around you. 1.6 million people in the triangle are without Christ. Even if 10% of those wanted to show up to a weekend service, we couldn't hold them. Not all the churches in the triangle could hold 160,000 people. So what do we do with this 1.6 million? What's our responsibility as believers, as those who say we follow Jesus, to that 1.6 million people who are lost without him? What's our responsibility? That's the question we have to ask and answer. That's because we exist for them. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 3 says that God is patient toward all, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That mean, means God wants every man, woman, and child to know his son Jesus. It goes on in that passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 to say that God's patience means salvation. And we sang these songs today about the, the, the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. He was buried, he rose again, and he's coming back, but there's this gap between the time when he, he died and rose again and ascended to his Father and the time that he's coming back. That's our time. That's our time to make a difference. It's here, it's now, it's for you, it's for me. Our mission is very clear in Scripture. We're going to take a look at that this morning because I think it's important that we understand, especially as we head into a new building and take ministry to another level, we need to be reminded of our basic mission as believers, as Christians, as Christ followers. These stats tell me a couple things, by the way. The stats tell me that that, um, church facilities, while important, are not going to reach the world. They, They tell me that that no matter how many church buildings we have, and by the way, we have more megachurches, which is 1,500 people or more, more gigachurches, which is 10,000 people or more, more church plants than ever in U.S. history, but we are experiencing in our time, on our watch, the greatest decline of Christianity in North America. So we can be happy Christians and come every weekend to a nice church facility and we can sing our praises and we can worship and all of that But if we forget the people outside, we have lost our purpose. We have lost our focus. We have lost our vision. And sadly, with all these mega and gigachurches and all these church plants, we are not reaching the lost effectively enough to reduce the lostness. And that's what we have to deal with. And the good news is this. You... And I can do it. You and I are supposed to do it. Jesus gave us very simple words to live by. 
That's your series for the summer. Words to live by. And these words are for you. Not just for the paid professionals. Not just for Brian. Not just for Jerry. Not just for Matt. Not just for David. And whoever else is on staff. These words are for you and for me. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do we see that that the main focus of ministry and the main focus of the church is for the paid professionals. Nowhere. And yet as churchgoers, we often get into this mindset that, hey, it's the pastor's responsibility. Yeah, how come we're not reaching the lost like we should? Brian, what's wrong with you? Get on the stick. Jerry, how come you don't see more people coming to Christ? What's wrong with you? The words to live by today are to you. To me, to each one of us that name the name of Christ, they come straight from the lips of Jesus. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. It's a passage I'm sure you're familiar with. Some of you probably have it memorized. You've certainly heard messages on it. If not, you've heard at least aspects of it. And I want to talk about it this morning because we have to get back to the basics. I have lost my grounding at times with this. I have failed the mission that Jesus has given me personally. Whole churches have done that. But these words, if we would live by them, will lead to a life of impact. A world-changing life. A life lived on purpose, with intent. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus had told his disciples to meet him on a mountaintop. And... uh, They go there and they meet, and and verse 17 says, some of those 11 disciples came doubting. What were they doubting? They were doubting that they were really going to see Jesus because lest they knew, he was buried in a tomb. Yeah, they had heard he had risen from the dead. They still doubted. It wasn't just us. It was other ones too. So they show up to this mountaintop because Jesus told them to be there, and here they are. Some questioning. Verse 18. Jesus came up to the mountaintop, spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Based on that authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. All nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I promise I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. These last words of Jesus are some of his most important to us. I don't know about you, but I've had on occasions the thought that what would I say to Martha and the boys and my daughter-in-law if I had the opportunity, this is going to sound really strange, to die slowly. If my death was not instantaneous and I was on my deathbed, what would I say to my family. You ever think about that? Maybe not as morbid as I am, but uh, I've thought about that more than one time. What would I say? What would my last words be? Why? Because those words that I'd share would be some of the most significant words that I could come up with. I would have had thought through my life and kind of distilled from God's truth and my own experiences what I believe they need to hear to remain faithful. So what would those words be? Well, Jesus' words are pretty simple. In English, there are two words. 
In the original language, they're one word. Here it is. Make disciples. That's what he wanted to leave with you. That's what he wanted to leave with me. Simple. Not complicated. Although we, as pastors, we complicate things. We're very good at complicating things, making Christianity very church-based and very weekend-oriented, and, and you've got to go through this program and that program and this class and that class, and you've got to do this. And it's like, wait a minute. How do I know if I'm a disciple? Which classes do I have to take? What's important for me to know? Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with classes. In fact, they're key to our development. But sometimes we make it complicated Jesus, to these 11, some of whom were doubting, wanted to keep it very simple. Make disciples. Now, these are the words we're to live by. These are the words that we are to enact. These are not for the super Christian. Because if you're like me, you get this picture in your mind of this guy. All he does is he meets with one individual at a time for a period of six weeks or six months. And, and then he goes on to the next guy, and it's like this laborious, this is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, I believe if you want to live a legacy, you got to live one. To leave one, you got to live one. And Jesus is telling you exactly how to live and leave a legacy right here. A lot of times we think about finances we need to leave for our kids. We've got to do this and we do that. But Jesus make, make disciples. That's the legacy he left, right? He had made disciples. Now he's saying, you want to live, leave a legacy, you got to live one. This is how you live. Make disciples. Disciples. So I have two questions. What does it mean? What does it mean to make disciples? And then how are we to make disciples? Well, it makes sense if we are disciples. Now, what's a disciple? A disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. We should define what a disciple is so we know what we're supposed to be. And if we're supposed to make them, we should know what we're trying to make. Does it make sense? Right? Okay. So here's a definition of a disciple. A disciple is a person who wholeheartedly follows Jesus and compels others to do the same. There's two elements to that. Individually, I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, am to do so wholeheartedly. I am to be all in. I am to align my will with the will of Jesus Christ. All in. But it doesn't end there. The second part is, I am to compel others to do the same. Now, the first one's difficult to do sometimes. We have to agree that sometimes it's hard to live for Jesus in certain circumstances. But the second part actually flies in the face of American Christianity. Why? Well, let's take this morning, for example. I don't want you to raise your hands or anything, but I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you came to this facility to meet with the church family called Northwest with the purpose of encouraging other people to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. Most of us don't come to a gathering of believers to do that. What do we come to do? Well, that music better be good. I didn't like that song last week. That guy could not play guitar worth a lick. We start evaluating. Oh, about that message? You, did you like that message? I didn't like that message. I didn't get anything out of that message. 
didn't teach me anything new. And we started evaluating church. Why? Because Christianity in America is about me. My growth. My personal relate. We talk about that a lot. My personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah, you have a personal relationship with Jesus. But there's nothing about faith in Jesus Christ that's supposed to stay personal. It is about other people. Jesus did not say, follow me, and I will help you grow spiritually. He said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men and women and children. You see that mission side of Christianity? The mission side of what we're called to do? That's for you. That's for me. Not for the paid professionals, but for you. We are responsible individually to be about discipling the nations. We barely think about our neighbors, let alone the nations. Why? We're too busy. We're focused on self. We want to study the Bible more. We want to do a lot of good things, but we have to be careful that the good things do not replace the main thing. The main thing is always the main thing, and the main thing is that we make disciples. That was, that's what Jesus called us to do. And the good news is, is that he did not leave us without any sense of how to do this. We talked about the what, so what's the how? Well, how many of you like English grammar? Maybe one of you, kind of like this. Well, you know, when you read the Bible, it's like reading any other literature, in the sense that it is written with certain grammar and syntax and all that stuff. And while that may sound boring, it's really important. There's one main command in this passage. One. And that command is not go. That command is make disciples. But there's three participles. And those three participles modify that main verb. It tells us how to make disciples. Going, baptizing, Teaching. Those three participles tell us how to go about making a disciple. So let's look at each one of those individually. The first thing. Jesus said, go. Actually, the original language, it reads like this. Having gone, make disciples. What was Jesus saying? Having gone from this mountaintop, you are gathered here with me. I'm going to send you. So having gone from this mountaintop, go make disciples. Where? Wherever your feet are. Wherever you find yourself, make disciples. I like to say make disciples where you live, learn. I love seeing all these students down here. Incredibly encouraging. But you are to be disciple makers too. Where we live, where we learn, where we work, and where we play. As you are going, having gone from here, having gone from this auditorium at Panther Creek High School, make disciples. That's what Jesus would be saying. Having gone from here. So let's look at that and consider that for a moment. Because as I said at the beginning, a lot of times what we want to do is we want to bring people into the building and let the paid professionals give the gospel. Is that bad? It's not bad. Is it effective? Many times it is. Is it the best? No, it's not. 
Because 1.6 million people, even if invited, could not fit into all the church buildings in North Carolina, let alone in the Triangle. So what does this mean? It means that you and I need to have this perspective that where we live is a mission field. We are to be on mission where we live. Here's an interesting exercise. Take out a piece of paper, draw your street, and put a block for, that represents every house on your street. Then write as many names of the people in each of those blocks as you can and see how many of your neighbors you know. Because I guarantee you this, if you don't know who they are, you're not going to reach them. What do you know about your neighbors? What about their struggles? What are their joys? Well, here's one of the problems with Christians too. We feel very comfortable in here. When we walk out, we go into the, the world. People that are, aren't like us. Yes, they are. They're human beings. And somehow, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you begin to look at people who are not believers as like, oh, accursed. Don't get near them. You might become like them. Just the opposite. We are to be with them and among them. We are to show them Jesus and share Jesus with them. How else are they going to hear? Jesus has sent you. In fact, Acts 17, 26 says, He has appointed our habitation, the places where we live, and he has determined the time. You live where you live right now for one main purpose, and it's not your job. It's not because of the school system. Now, you may have chosen that because of those things, but from Jesus' economy, you are there to make disciples where you live. I am to make disciples where I live. But we also make disciples where we learn. Students. Whether in, in elementary, middle, high, college, graduate, you are around people that have something in common with you. They're fellow students. It's important that you understand your calling as a follower of Jesus. It is to make other followers of Jesus, to compel others to Jesus, and you compel them through how you live your life. You show them Jesus so that you have a platform to share Jesus with them. But it's your calling as well. Every man, woman, and child having repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ where they live, learn, work, and play. That's our responsibility. It's our calling. It's our mission. And when we do that, life becomes a life of significance, of joy. It's where you live, where you learn, where you work. We spend the greatest amount of time and energy where we work. How many people do you know in your workplace? Do you know what they're struggling with? Do you know what their, their, their joys are, their sorrows are? Are you able to communicate with them effectively? Do you spend time? Do you take time? Are you intentional? Or you just show up? It's work, I got to do it, and I go home, rinse and repeat, do it again tomorrow. Instead of understanding Jesus has called you as having gone make disciples. 
Well, I can't talk about my faith. Well, I understand. There are some restrictions. But you can certainly show the character of Jesus in your life, and we are to, no matter where we are. And through that character, people began asking questions. Why do you love that boss of yours who's always putting you down, keeping you from those promotions? They're my love of Jesus, that's why. I love Jesus more than I love my job, and he calls me to love those that persecute me. That's why I do it. I don't like your boss. Well, Jesus said, you've heard it say, love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Oh, yeah, that's teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then where you play, where you live, learn, work, and play. Playing is an important part. I go to a gym a couple mornings a week, and there are people there that I see and have seen for the last 10 years. In fact, Joel Tillotson, I think he's here somewhere in the audience. He got me the, my first membership at this gym. I've been there ever since, Joel. Thank you. Um, met a lot of great people. Been able to introduce people to Christ. And one such guy is going through a divorce, uh, not a divorce, separation. His wife wants to leave him. And this guy gave his life to Christ a couple years ago at Easter service at Hope. And, and we're just trying to help him live faithfully compelling him in the midst of that to wholeheartedly live for Jesus. It's my responsibility. I would not have known him unless I worked out of that gym. So wherever we are going, wherever we find our feet, make disciples. Not only are we to be considering that as we're going, but when somebody becomes a believer, it says baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the second participle. This is how you make a disciple. Make a disciple by sharing the love of Jesus and the message of Jesus where you live, learn, work, and play. Then you baptize. Baptism is a significant step in the life of a believer. It's not a religious rite. It's not a church thing. It's a Jesus thing. Jesus said baptize them when they believe. We have sometimes confined that to church facilities. Sometimes we think a paid professional has to, you know, a pastor has to baptize us. No, people, you are called to do that. You are called to make disciples. You can disciple someone right where you are. You can baptize them. Doesn't that sound strange? Doesn't sound right, does it? But nowhere in Scripture do you see that somebody who is on staff a pastor or any church building baptizes. We've kind of institutionalized this whole great commission that this passage is called. We've made it all about the, the, the kind of the weekend-oriented oriented, uh, approach. And it's not. In your everyday life, live the gospel every day in the everyday stuff of life and compel others to do the same. You do that, baptizing them. Now, baptism is important to understand what it is. And what it's not. It's not a religious rite, but it's, there's three things you're saying when you get baptized. And if you haven't been baptized, it's really important that you understand this. It's, it's not, by the way, parents, don't, don't urge your child to be baptized. A lot of parents do that. They put a lot of guilt on their children. Allow your children to make that decision for themselves, because here's what it means. When you are baptized, it means I pledge my allegiance to Jesus 
above everyone and everything else, no matter the cost or circumstance. And every individual has to be willing to say that. So don't pressure people to be baptized. If they believe, baptize them. But that's what they're saying. My allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. Secondly, it's saying, I align myself with God's people, a fellowship of believers. I understand I need them and they need me. I'm part of a body. I'm part of a family. And the third thing is, I'm all in on the mission of Jesus. I'm saying I'm going to be a disciple maker because that's what he's called me to do. That's what baptism is all about. That's a declaration, a public declaration that you are all in with Jesus and what he wants you to do. All in with his people. All in with obeying. So I would encourage you, as you are leading people to Christ, where you live, learn, work, and play, that when you baptize, you baptize with that understanding. Finally, the third participle is teaching. This is what it says. And teaching them all that I've commanded you. No. Teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Really important phrase in there, to obey. Why? Well, because most of us like to learn. We want to know the word. We want to know the deep things of the word. Sinclair Ferguson once said, the deep things of the word are the basic truths of the gospel. I love that statement. Our responsibility is teach people to obey. How do you do that? Just dumping on people God's truth? No. You have to invest in their lives to know them, to relate with them, to be able to say, you know what? This part of your life is out of alignment with God's will. Well, who are you to tell me? Well, I'm a fellow struggler, but this is what God's word says. And when you see something wrong in my life, you tell me. We are to help each other that way. We are to encourage each other to obey, not just to learn. Sometimes we get caught up in that learning because we just need to know more. But we are responsible for all the truths that we do know. So until we're living all those truths, don't be so eager to learn. Be more eager to obey all that Christ has commanded. There are three questions that I think are important to ask one another. Maybe when you're in the foyer talking, uh, maybe on the phone in your small groups, here's three questions that I think are really key. First of all, what is the Spirit of God teaching you through his word? Not what are you learning, but what is the Spirit of God teaching you through his word? Secondly, what are you going to do about it? That's the obedience part. What what are you going to do with what God's teaching you? How is that going to show up in your life? And the third is, who are you going to compel to do the same? That's that mission side. Who are you going to now bring along in that truth? Can you imagine if we were all doing that? How our faith would increase? The collective strength of Northwest would increase? And we would be all the more equipped, all the more readied and outfitted to reach people? That 1.6 million in the triangle that are without Christ? Owning the lostness of the people where we live, work, and play, is our responsibility. If we don't own the lostness of them, who's going to? Who's going to reach your neighbor if you don't? Who's going to reach that work associate or that student if you don't? And if you abdicate that to somebody else, then you're not on mission for Jesus. That's basically what he said. Make disciples. Your responsibility. 
my responsibility. Pretty simple. Not always easy. But simple. Jesus gave it to us plain. These are his last words. This is what I want you to do. You can be a game changer. You can change someone's life. The life of this church can change. You can change the world. That's what he came to do. Now it's our responsibility. Those are words to live by. I trust, both individually and collectively, Northwest will be known as a church that makes disciples. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace that you would even ask us to do what Jesus started, that we would even be able to continue it on. And we know we can't do it apart from the power of the Spirit working in our lives. Lord, help us to rely on his power, his strength, his presence. Jesus promised he'd go with us when we did this, even to the end of the age. So Lord, help us, where we live, learn, work, and play, to show and share Jesus and give every man, woman, and child repeated opportunities to see Jesus in us, hear Jesus from us. I pray this church, family, Northwest Community Church, would grab a hold of these simple last words that your son uttered. They'd embrace them and they'd pursue it with all of their hearts. I'm looking forward to what you're going to do in and through Northwest. Use them mightily, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.